Listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code Perfy for 15% off today. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Food Chain presented by Triple Whale. Today we have Phil Lempert with us, also known as the supermarket guru. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Got it. Phil, tell me where, how you got to where you are today and all of the fun things you've done in your career. Sure. Well, I was actually born into it. My grandfather's a dairy farmer back in Belleville, New Jersey. My father was a food manufacturer and then a food broker. So it was just part of my nature. But I chose not to get into the manufacturing side of it, but really to be in the center of a triangle. And the points of the triangle are consumers, retailers, and brands. And my job simply is to make sure everybody knows what the other one is doing and to be able to make sure that consumers are getting everything that they need every time they go shopping. Interesting. And it started as a family thing. And you you say that it's in your DNA. Like, what are some things that in your history, what are some of like those biggest moments in change in terms of what the consumer is looking for? Well, if we take a look over the past few decades, certainly, you know, when I was growing up, people really didn't talk about that whole combination of food as medicine and food for nutrition. It was just, you know, filling your belly and making that experience as good as possible. So we've really come full circle to have an awareness of how what we eat influences our brain, our life, the longevity of it. So I think that's probably the biggest change that we've seen. And certainly from a retail standpoint, we've seen supermarkets around the country really step up, whether it's from prepared foods, whether it's having retail dietitians who can advise us. The whole holistic approach to buying and selling food has evolved to where we are today, which I think is great. And it's still evolving. Love it. In the consumer's journey for finding the variety of choices that they want, all being healthier versions of things they love, do you find that there is confusion that goes on there with bigger food companies? Or I purposely don't want to call out any brands, but the main question is, there is a lot of information coming around from brands with tons of money. And then there's the better for you, maybe challenger brands that are have limited resources to educate customers. Do you find there's a big give and take there? Absolutely. It's tough for a consumer. And especially right now with the prices continuing to go up for three basic reasons. One is climate change. The other one is a labor shortage and labor price increases. And the other one is a trucking shortage. We're going into the supermarket and spending more than we ever have. So consumers are very concerned. Consumers are very confused. I just shot a segment yesterday in a supermarket here in Los Angeles with a reporter where I pointed out in the cereal aisle where there was a package called family size and then there was a package called giant size and the giant size was bigger than the family size. But when you looked very carefully at the price, the family size was cheaper per ounce than the giant size was. 
So whether it's shrinkflation, whether it's skimflation, whether it's this era where companies are being forced to change ingredients, whether it's because of price or availability, consumers have to beware and consumers have to be smarter than ever before. Yeah, I love where you went with the shrinkflation. I actually bought a juice recently, a juice that I get from a normal national grocery store. And that juice, same price, maybe, I think it was almost same price and 12 ounces less, it's usually a 64 ounce carton. Now it's a 52 ounce carton. And I figured it yeah. out because I was like, how the heck did I palm this container when it's like, it's usually a larger one, you know? You know, every part of the supermarket, whether it's paper towels that now have less sheets per paper towel or toilet paper or pints of ice cream that now have 14 ounces instead of 16 ounces. Last time I looked, a pint was 16 ounces, but not in the ice cream aisle. So what we're really faced with is the conundrum for what does a shopper do when there was a major brand of chips that announced probably about six months ago that it was new and improved and it has six less chips in it than it did before. That's not new and improved. So we're really faced with what I call food crimes taking place. And we as consumers have to stand up and we have to say, okay, we're not going to accept this. There's a major brand of soup that has a potato soup. Potatoes before the pandemic were the number one ingredient. Now water is the number one ingredient. So it's tougher than ever before to go shopping. That's so interesting to hear. I've been talking about this a lot with friends in the industry. And I think there's a lot, you, you mentioned earlier how there's some ingredient changes going on for brands to, to keep on going. Talk to me more about what you've seen with ingredient changes. We, we mentioned the potatoes, but have you seen others that have had to do so? And I'll start with one that I found. Won't name the brand, but I know that there is a company out there who gets a lot of their raw materials from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I think I believe it's some sort of fiber or something or other. And now they don't have the access to that that they once did prior to all of these things unfolding in the world. Do you have other examples of that that are happening right now? Yes. If you take a look, you mentioned Ukraine. They're the primary supplier of sunflower oil. So sunflower oil has been used in a lot of salad dressings and margarines and so on. So we don't have access to that. So what a company has to do is figure out what's a good replacement for it. Number one, from a taste profile standpoint, from a nutritional standpoint, But also, at the same time, they're looking to save money so that they don't have to raise prices. So if you take a look at what's going on with climate change, and to me, that's the number one factor that the food industry has to address with all the fires in the Pacific Northwest destroying soy and corn crops. You look at the floods in Brazil that has destroyed a lot of the coffee beans that are out there. We have a real problem. And the average consumer doesn't know that. The average consumer, when they go into a store, they're blaming the retailer for these high prices. Has nothing to do with the retailer. It really doesn't. It has to do with what the raw material is that's going into it. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. There's 10% less turkeys out there because of bird flu and because of diseases than we've ever had before. So a year ago, The price of turkey was $1.15 a pound on average throughout the U.S. Now it's $1.99. That's a 72% increase on just the price of turkey. So what we're really seeing is a lot of food companies trying very hard to stay in business, trying to source their ingredients, 
and it's tougher. There's a major margarine company that couldn't get the kind of oil that they needed, so they switched the formula and there's more water in it. Well, guess what? They had a lot of consumer pushback from it, from a taste standpoint, from a water standpoint, and as a result, they had to go back to their original formula. We're seeing more products like that than ever before, and for us as a consumer, when we go shopping, the average consumer spends 22 minutes on a shopping trip. Well, maybe we need to spend 35 minutes or 40 minutes and just slow down a bit because we need to read these labels, the ingredient statements, the net weight more than ever before. Wow, that's fascinating. I feel like there's two different ways that we can go with all of these things going on. I'll preface it with, you touched on the fires. I've never seen more fires at large food manufacturing mm-hmm. companies in my life. And it, it's pretty wild. So I imagine that's having huge impact. You talked about the bird flu and how that's impacting some raw materials. Do you think that there's two forks in the road? One where suppliers or manufacturers have the opportunity to better or improve their product. Or two, as you mentioned with the potato, the soup where the potato was the first ingredient, now it's water. I feel like there's two routes brands can take. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you're right. And to be honest with you, I think that the average brand has too many SKUs. In the beginning of the pandemic, the CEO of Progresso Soup made an announcement that they were cutting their assortment in half. And the reason for that was supply chain issues. But we have too many choices. The supermarket that I was in yesterday, 98,000 square foot. They had over 115,000 SKUs in that store. Whoa, we just don't need that much. When McDonald's got into their you know, electronic display boards, instead of just having you know, the printed ones, their sales went up. And the reason is that people used to go into McDonald's and see all those items on the menu board and they froze. They didn't know what to choose. Now you go in for breakfast, you just see the breakfast items, lunch, just the lunch items, and so on. So do we need 100 different varieties of olive oil in a supermarket? If I look at Aldi, Aldi does it right, in my opinion. Olive oil, using that example, Aldi has a basic olive oil, an imported high-grade olive oil, an organic olive oil, and an extra virgin olive oil. Do we need more than that? I would suggest not. And as a result of that, if these companies, if these brands got rid of all these other SKUs that were meaningless, then they could focus on making the best quality product from a nutrition and a taste standpoint possible. Again, back to my cereal example, when I look at any of the major brands, whether it's cornflakes, whether it's Cheerios and so on, wow, they come in... 10 different size boxes, different varieties with berries, without berries, and so on. And it just clutters up from a manufacturing standpoint, from a supply chain standpoint. And if we could have the same way emerging brands do, a focus on what's really on the mind of consumers, what do we really need to deliver to consumers versus a brand manager just trying to add brand extensions to keep their job. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, there's sometimes just way too much fluff and noise. I personally have 
a couple experiences with that where there's so many functional sodas out there. I would say 90% plus are focused on gut health. And I get a lot of grief for, oh, it's, it's tough to bring on another functional soda. But what I find is the big unlock for me is I tell buyers or stakeholders, well, you, you have a lot of gut health options on the on the set and the, the cooler. You don't have many brain health options. And that's how we're strategically positioned to be different. And it's been a huge, it's been a huge help for me. Yeah. I think that what a brand needs to do, and this is everybody from the CEO to the brand manager, is decide what your product is all about and do that really, really well. And then you'll be successful versus just, and the problem is, you look, we need big brands. There's no question about that. But that system is broken. It just doesn't work. Coming out with another brand, giving retailers slotting allowances just to get something on the shelf that doesn't sell. Yeah, I, I hear you there. I want to talk about uh, skew discipline. You mentioned how brands are cutting back, cutting it in half. Uh, I think you said that was a suit company. I want to talk about brands that have done it well, where they've been extremely dis- disciplined. And I'll start with mine. I think that Liquid Death has done a tremendous job at being disciplined with their still and sparkling water. And then they added, you know, they, they did a couple of years with that and they added their sparkling flavored options. And then next year, they're going to add their teas. What are some brands that are exercising extreme skew discipline right now that you think of? Well, I think what we're seeing, and this is not skirting the answer, but what we're seeing is a revelation, especially in plant-based everything, that what we have is certain brands that have come out that are plant-based that every retailer jumped on and nobody buys them. And whether it's because of taste, whether it's because of the ingredients, that should be the warning sign for every brand to say, okay, don't jump on a fad. Really have, you know, whether it's brain health, to your point, whether it's gut health, have science that backs it up. So for brands that do it really well, one standout for me is Kerrygold Butter, which is now the number two butter after private label in the nation. Kerrygold, an imported, higher-priced butter that nobody ever heard of, you know, 10 years ago, now a major, major brand. And they had a distinct focus that what they wanted to do is to provide the best quality product that they could. They didn't ignore price, but price didn't get in their way. They're not competing with a local butter company that's 30% less. So I think that they do a great job. I also think that there are retailers with their private brands that are doing an exceptional job. Kroger, probably the biggest standout as it relates to private brands. And again, focus, focus, focus. As I mentioned, Aldi, with their private brands, 98% of what's in an Aldi is their own brand. I think that what consumer brands need to do is they need to look at how smart retailers have become on their own brands. Because for me, those are the standouts. Love it. Transitioning into private label brands, do you find that some retailers like Kroger are, they're sourcing other brands and just switching the packaging? Isn't that part of what private label is? Or are they manufacturing it themselves and R&Ding the products themselves? Or is it a little bit of both? It's both. So what we see at both Kroger and Aldi is they have departments with foodies who are creating these great recipes, and then they push them out to manufacturers to bid on it. There are other retailers who basically say, okay, I want to knock off Cheerios as as much as I can. I want to make the package look the same, the ingredients the same, 
and I just want to sell it for you know a cheaper price. But what we're seeing for the standouts are those who are really looking at their private brands in detail and trying to make them better. A&P, in their heyday, what they did, and Loblaws did the same thing in Canada, they made superior choice private brands. In the case of A&P, it was called Master's Choice. In Loblaws' case, it was President's Choice. And the story that Loblaws always talks about, their number one private brand product was chocolate chip cookies. So they looked at the number one selling chocolate chip cookie in the U.S., and they counted how many chocolate chips were in that cookie. I'm going to make up the number. It was like 10. So President's Choice said, okay, well, we're going to put 15 in. We're just going to up the quality, the, the more chocolate chips. And it was a home run for them. So I think today what we're seeing is retailers curating their private brands much smarter than they ever did before because they understand that the only place you can buy their private brand is from them. You can't go someplace else. So if you like a particular store's private brand, you're gonna stay loyal to that store. So cool. I heard that Kirkland is now like one of the top brands in the nation, is that true? Yes, Kirkland is. And also when we look at this Kroger Albertsons deal, when it goes through, they will have over 35,000 private brands and that will make them the number two CPG brand in the U.S. with just their private brands. Who's number one? Number one, I believe it's Nestle. Wow. Yeah, Kirkland is having a day, right? Or a, 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 it's having its day. It's, uh, I remember back when I was growing up, if you had Kirkland things, it was like, oh, you know, you're buying that Costco stuff. And now it's like the coolest thing to do. They have even merch, I think. Well, you know, if you take a look, again, it's because of the quality mm -hmm. of it. And you look at Costco in particular, they do more inspections on meat than the whole federal government does. Their meat is probably the highest quality that you can buy in any supermarket. Their focus is delivering value to consumers and delivering quality to consumers. And when you have that combination, again, whether it's Costco, whether it's Aldi, whatever store, it's a winning formula. Beautiful. Bill, I've never taken more show notes by hand during a, an episode of Food Chain ever. I'm on my third page now. <laughs> well, thank you. It's a wealth of knowledge. Um, so going into private label, I want to dig deeper into that, but through the lens of the brand. Mm -hmm. What are some of the pros and cons of brands going into private label, understanding that they're not going to get the brand recognition, the quality might be there? I won't lead the question too much, but what are some pros and cons of that? Well, you know, the pro is you get money. <laughs> That's probably the only pro mm -hmm. that you sign a deal with a retailer and you're assured of what the volume is going to be. And that's good. The con, very simply, is you're not building a brand and you're always at risk that when your contract comes up, some other manufacturer can steal that business if they have a lower price. So if you've got excess production facilities and you're looking to fill that, great. Or you just decide that what you're going to do is private brands and you're not going to have your own brand. But it's really tough for a brand, um, especially a smaller brand, to be able to balance that out because every day you're waking up saying, am I going to lose this business? You can't over-index on it. I hear you there. I've got another question for uh, some of the brands out there that may be interested in doing this or are doing it, or it's not even a question, it's more of a, a thought. 
I feel like some brands that have an innovative product that doesn't quite have national buy-off, something that might be like fringe and different. I'll, I'll make a big example. Um, actually, this is a real life example. There is this new onion ring snack at Trader Joe's. And I was like, dang, I wonder if this is the Trader Joe's or if this is maybe private label. And it's a delicious onion ring, like, I don't know, chickpea chip or something. It's almost like a Funyun. Mm. And I recently saw an ad, and I screenshot. I was like, oh my God, I think that's the same product. And it's like Harvest Snacks, I think it is. And they have like a barbecue and the, the French onion um, yep. snack. So that would be kind of like maybe too different for some retailers in the nation. Is there a world where, you know, like a Trader Joe's or Costco or Kroger or Aldi, is there a world where they kind of help with that product market fit and acceptance of a fringe product? Yes. There's no doubt that what retailers want to do today is differentiate themselves from their competition. And if you look at Air One in Los Angeles, for example, they go out of their way to get new, different brands. You mentioned Trader Joe's, same kind of thing. The reality is for a brand, they don't have to sell to everybody in the nation from a consumer standpoint or from a retailer standpoint in order to be successful. Yes, you know, when you start a brand, you want to sell to everybody, but you don't have to. You can make a great brand and a great business by just selling to retailers who have that customer profile that like your product. I know a bunch of brands that just sell to Trader Joe's and they're very, very successful. You don't have to sell to Walmart and Kroger and ShopRite and everybody else in order to be successful. Fantastic insights, Phil. Thank you. Let's go into some trends. What are some trends that you're seeing on the horizon going into 2023? Well, as I mentioned before, you know, plant-based has really taken a major hit. I think that what we're going to see from a trend is plant-based continue, but these companies really focus on what truly is plant-based. And if you go after that consumer, that consumer cares about the environment, they care about their health. So that means that you can't have GMO ingredients. It means you can't have artificial stuff in it. For me, you know, I still love Boca Burger, which is probably now 35 years old and a terrific product versus some of these new ones. So I think we're gonna see an evolution of what plant-based is. I think that what we're gonna see is much more focus on store brands, especially because of the price difference that so many people are really concerned about these days. I see an evolution of cheeses where what we're seeing is more innovation as it relates to cheese flavors than ever before. It's going well beyond the breeze and the soft rinds and just many more expectations. Because of supply chain issues, because of the price of transportation, we're seeing a lot less imported products, whether it's from Europe or whether it's even from China. So I believe we're gonna see more innovation here from US-based companies. And certainly because of the environment, we're gonna see more indoor farming than ever before. When you think about that 90% of all the lettuce sold in the country is grown in California and it has to be shipped 3,000 miles to New York, that's absurd. So what we're gonna see is we're gonna see more indoor farms dotted throughout the country as it relates to meatpacking facilities, 
Gone are the days of a million square foot meatpacking facility. We're going to see smaller meatpacking facilities that are less reliant on workers, human workers, and more focused about robotics. Wow. Indoor farming. I had no idea that 90% of lettuce was farmed in California. Yeah. And when you think about the inefficiencies of that, it's one of the reasons we have so many recalls as it relates to bagged lettuce and bagged spinach. It takes, you know, four or five days away. So you look at a company like Bowery Farms that started in Brooklyn, New York, and they just keep on growing. It's because they can service those retailers in the New York metro area with a fresher product. And again, when you have a fresher product, it also has more nutrition. It also has more flavor than ever before. When you think about buying strawberries in February that have to be flown in, they're picked before they're ripe. So they're crunchy. Yeah, they're big, they're red because they're gassed. But, you know, there's no flavor, no nutrients in them. We've got to start thinking about our food supply and eating produce in particular that's in season. And when we do that, we win. I remember growing up, my parents had a blueberry bush. Our neighbors had strawberries. And we used to exchange those fruits when they came in season. And boy, you just waited for that season. And the flavor was great. Now, when I buy blueberries in a supermarket, and whether they come from Mexico or California or Peru or wherever, it just doesn't have the kind of flavor that I remember as a kid. So interesting. I don't even know the seasons of fruits anymore because they're available year round now. And you're just like you said, they either are delicious. That's likely when they're in season or it's like, what's going on here? That doesn't taste like a strawberry anymore. And the average produce department in a supermarket has over 500 varieties, 500 SKUs. That's absurd. When you go into a produce department, you see these big bins of apples. Well, apples are basically in cold storage before they get to the supermarket for about a year or a little over a year. Why not just have the varieties of apples that are in season available so that people can enjoy it? Everybody in the produce world complains. We know that the science has told us that eating more produce, more fruits and more vegetables is good for our health. But with all the money that the produce industry spends, consumption has not gone up. And why is that? It's not because of marketing. It's not because of advertising. It's because, to your point, you buy something that's out of season. It doesn't taste very good. You don't buy it again. I can't remember the last time that I had a cantaloupe that was great. Well, I can. When I was in you know, a cantaloupe field in Arizona, and we cut up the cantaloupe right there in the field, and we tasted it, and it was like, wow, this is what a cantaloupe really should taste like versus something that's crunchy and tasteless. So I think for our health, for our taste buds, and for value, if supermarkets and the industry just said, okay, we're going to sell what's in season, And certainly what's in season in California is different than what's in season in New York. And we're going to retrain people's taste buds for the upcoming generations to really understand what food tastes like. Wow. You know, we can really change people's behavior significantly as it relates to health and nutrition. Wild. I never even thought about the macro impact of not eating produce that's in season. I want to transition, uh, Philip, it's okay, to plant-based. That was one of your first notes and the focus on environmental impacts and health and not using GMOs and nothing artificial. 
we've all seen a couple brands that were the leaders in that plant-based movement, particularly like plant-based meats take a little bit of a hit over the past couple of years. But something that I'm seeing is one thing that I think is cool is a blend of meat and veggies. There's a couple mm-hmm. of brands out there like Phil's Finest that I enjoy. But another thing I'm seeing, and I'm actually not particularly fascinated by it, is crickets. And no offense to any friends of mine that have had companies built on, on cricket protein. But what's, <laughs> what's, what's your take on this, this movement towards crickets? Well, if you look at insect protein, and it's not just crickets, but there's about 100 different species of insects that are used around the world for protein. It is a very effective, both from a cost standpoint and nutrition standpoint, method of of delivering protein to human beings. We've got to get past the image that I think the Washington Post had uh, a few years ago that somebody was eating a cricket sandwich with the legs of the crickets, you know, hanging outside the bun. That's not what we do. What we do is we grind up the insects and we use it as an ingredient to add protein. A lot of the protein bars that are out there are now using cricket protein. Beetles are being used, lots of different insects. When you think of a trailer load of cows, you can probably put, and I'm guessing, you can probably put like 30 cows on a truck. You could load that truck with millions of crickets, millions of insects. So it just becomes so much more effective than any other kind of protein that's out there. So I do think we're going to see it grow. We saw a lot of investment from venture capital into insect protein a few years ago. It sort of waned, but I think that we're going to continue to see that. And also, back to your previous example, when we're seeing the blends of whether it's cauliflower or mushrooms and and ground beef, we're going to continue to see that grow as well. I mean, it was really the Mushroom Council that worked with the James Baird Foundation that came up with what's called the blend, half mushroom and half ground beef. And it's a really tasty burger. Not only is it a better health profile, but in my opinion, it tastes better as well. So we're going to see more of these analog type of products whether it's using insects for protein, whether it's using mushrooms and cauliflower and broccoli. Erwan, again, in Los Angeles, what they have is they've got a fabulous pizza. While everybody was doing cauliflower pizzas, they made a broccoli crust pizza that's absolutely delicious. So we're going to see more of those things. I want to give a big shout out to a, a close team that, that I work with, and that's Outer Isle. They, they launched a broccoli pizza crust. They've got cauliflower in there. They're basically reimagining bread with vegetables, and I think it's one of the coolest things. Absolutely. You see a lot of people now who have gluten intolerances. We're seeing that rise. We're seeing the rise of a lot of food allergies. And to be able to make a cauliflower or a broccoli crust pizza that tastes great, that's delicious, that's the way we should be eating. We shouldn't be stuck in the old way of eating with all the food innovations that we've got now, with all the great chefs that are out there that are experimenting. We as consumers have to be willing to experiment as well. Yeah. Me personally, I'm super willing to experiment with vegetables. It's going to take a lot for me to experiment with insects. I don't mean (laughs) to sound privileged because we're in America, but I'm just a big fan of the science behind what grass-fed red meat does. I appreciate certain brands that they treat the animal with honor the way that they kill them. I'm a big fan of animals. It's like a catch-22 for me where I love animals, but also I know that as long as this cow was taken out in a respectful and honorable way, 
then I'm okay with it the way that I would have done it if I was a caveman many years ago. Sure. But the next time you eat a power bar or protein bar, look at the ingredients carefully and you're going to see that there's some insects in there. I don't mess with power bar. I'm a fan of Quest Nutrition. I, I grew, I, my career started there and I'm loyal to them, but uh, I'm definitely going to take a look at power bar and, and try to find these hidden crickets. I've seen some in protein powders I and mean, I've stayed away from them, but yeah, it's just, it's not something that's on my horizon of, of openness. So one of the um, execs at Quest, his dad owns a restaurant here in Santa Monica, the oldest restaurant in Santa Monica called The Galley. And Ron Scherer, his son, who was part of the whole Quest family, and he grew up in the food world. So, you know, just growing up, you know, in a restaurant leads you to other things and understanding what consumers are looking for. And I agree with you about Quest. Love it. Yeah, great product. Well, Phil, I think we've touched on everything. I'm honestly like just going through my notes and so excited to get this episode out. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Just that as we continue in the food world, we really have to address climate change. We really have to address our labor shortage and what people are making on an hourly wage. At the start of the pandemic, people were shocked to learn that people who were in the poultry and the meatpacking plants were making eight bucks an hour. We need automation. We need to use AI and machine learning much more to make our food system just so much more efficient. I love that. I think one thing for me with the climate change is finding like a single source of truth. And I don't know if it will ever be possible as it pertains to the food system, because I think that there's folks that are too polarizing in their in their takes on things. I never know what's real. You know, I just know that something's happening. I wish there was a better source of truth for that. I agree with you. And what happens is the headlines get in the way. So I don't know if you saw, but the prime minister of New Zealand, who I have a lot of respect for her, certainly what she pulled off through the pandemic, what they're trying to do is they're trying to tax ranchers based on the amount, and pardon my language, but the the amount of farts and burps uh, (laughs) that cows um, and other animals have in New Zealand. And that as a way to raise money to focus on climate change. I'm not quite sure how you measure how many burps a cow has, but those are the headlines that really take away the importance of correcting our climate. Yeah, I'm going to stay away from that one. I don't want to get too deep into how I feel about that, but I'm uh, <laughs> pretty funny about the taxation on parts and burps. All right. So where can everyone find you? It's easy. Just supermarketguru.com. Beautiful. I'll make sure to tag that in the show notes. I had an absolute blast with you, Phil. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely.